Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Welcome back to our winter wonderland. In our very unintentional King January. Yeah, Shay texted me and was like, did you realize we accidentally stumbled into a theme? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, but here we are, yeah. Last two weeks, this week, and next week, we are dealing with films based on Stephen King films, or novels, rather. Yeah, we definitely meant to do The Shining and Doctor Sleep together, and then we're like, you know what? The movie we're doing next week has been on our list for so long, let's just throw it in there. But we knew we wanted to do Misery as like a New Year's type movie. And then I texted her being like, did you know that Misery's King? (laughs) (laughs) No, why would I know that? (laughs) No, actually, what I said was, you know what's so fucking funny? (laughs) Yeah, you did. I love when Shay sends me podcast related voice memos. I just love getting the inflection and especially an occasional, do you know what's so fucking funny? (laughs) Because then you know it's going to be good. To be fair, in my mind, I think I knew that Misery was king, but just in the context of us scheduling, it came about very naturally, so we're very excited to be talking about it. So let's not waste any time. We are going to dive into our ladies. Of course, we have the one and only Kathy Bates as the infamous Annie Wilkes. Bates is an American actress. She is well known for her role as Annie Wilkes, for which she won an Academy Award for Best Actress, which is almost unheard of for anybody really in the horror genre to be recognized at the Academy Awards as a winner. We know we've had nominations in the past. But she also has many other awards for various film and TV performances throughout her career, spanning over five decades, including two Emmy Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, and two Screen Actors Guild Awards, as well as nominations for a Tony Award and two BAFTA Awards in addition to the Oscar. So she is a decorated, recognized actress. Some other movie and TV appearances include The Titanic, 1997, The Waterboy, 1998, Annie, 1999, American Horror Story Freak Show, 2014, and American Horror Story Hotel, 2015. Next, we have Frances Sternhagen as Deputy Virginia. And let Shay and I tell you, Deputy Virginia and Sheriff Buster, these characters, what a special little treat. Sternhagen was an American actress who actually just passed away in November of 2023. She was known as a character actress who appeared on and off Broadway in movies and on television for over six decades. She received numerous accolades, including two Tony Awards, a Drama Desk Award, and a Saturn Award, as well as nominations for three Primetime Emmy Awards. So she had such an extensive career as an actress. And next we have Lauren Bacall as Marcia Snydell. Bacall was an American actress. She was in so much that there's a separate wiki page for her filmography. We've seen that a couple times before. We're seeing it again. She was named the 20th greatest female star of classic Hollywood cinema by the American Film Institute and received an Academy Honorary Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 2009 in recognition for her contribution to the golden age of motion pictures. She was known for her alluring, sultry presence and her distinctive husky voice, (laughs) which I put that in here because I think we can see that in her character. Even though it's a minor role, she does still have a presence in this movie. And then finally, we have Misery the Pig as herself. (laughs) So there is a pig named Misery. Getting into some pre-plot trivia. This film is based on, as you know, the Stephen King novel of the same name. The film is written by Stephen King and William Goldman and directed by Rob Reiner. 
Annie Wilkes is Stephen King's favorite written character because she was always surprising to write with unexpected depth and sympathy. Jack Nicholson was offered the role of Paul Sheldon, but passed because he was not sure he wanted to do another movie based on one of Stephen King's novels after what he had experienced with Stanley Kubrick in The Shining, 1980. Hi. Don't blame him. (laughs) James Cann accepted the role. James Cann and Kathy Bates clashed over their acting methods. Can believed in as little rehearsal as possible. Bates, with her theater background, was used to practicing a lot. When she commented to Rob Reiner that Can was not attempting to relate or listen to her, Reiner told her to use that frustration toward her character. Rob Reiner studied Alfred Hitchcock movies to figure out how to shoot a thriller, watching every Hitchcock film. Reiner had Hitchcock on the brain so much that James Can overheard Reiner chastising himself one day on set, asking himself, who do you think you are, Alfred Hitchcock? <laughs> and I think that's funny because there are a lot of sources and journals and blogs that explore the similarities, not only in the storylines of Misery and specifically Hitchcock's Psycho, but also like the cinematography of the films. We haven't covered any Hitchcock yet, so I decided not to get into that. I felt like that would be a little bit silly, but I'm sure one day we will cover Hitchcock. And when we do, I'm sure Misery will make an appearance as, you know, a source we can connect to and things like that. So that's what we got. Jumping right into it, we open with the typing on a typewriter. We see Paul Sheldon finishing a manuscript that's named Untitled. He pours himself some champagne, lights a cigarette, and goes to leave a lodge that he's been staying at. I laughed that he throws a snowball at a tree and says, still got it, and that never comes back. (laughs) It does not matter. He just wanted to throw a snowball. (laughs) He listens to some pumped-up jams as a terrifying title card rolls across the screen, and he careens down a road with no road visibility. Oh my gosh, it is... (laughs) To this day, of all the things I've gotten used to in the horror genre, to this day, irresponsible driving still gets me. Also, the title of this song serves as foreshadowing, which I will bring up later. So finally, he has some concern for his lack of four-wheel drive, but it's a little too late because he flips his ride off the road and careens down an embankment during a very active blizzard. Like, when I tell you there was no road visibility, (laughs) this man was going so fast. And I think it's so funny that we just covered The Shining because it was the same thing. So many snowy roads and lack of concern. But this is not a snowcat. This is a Mustang. Exactly. And the Mustang rolls right off the road. Meanwhile, after that happens, we see this same man, Paul, now in an office with his agent talking about his roles and the books that he's going to be writing. And he's like, oh, I'm tired of this misery business. And I was like, "Uh, (gasps) Paramore. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. (laughs) But back to the present, we see that Paul is being chiseled out of the car. Somebody's using a crowbar to open the driver's side door of his ride and gives him some very aggressive mouth to mouth. But also, I was like, hasn't this woman learned the Staying Alive song? Ah, ah. Yeah, it, it was just not very good CPR. No, it wasn't. However, he does take some breath, so he has been saved. But this stranger pockets his briefcase and fireman carries him away from the wreckage. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Paul is carried away from the crash, he comes to staring at the face of some woman who quickly introduces herself as Annie Wilkes, but not before saying, I'm your number one fan, to which I said, by Muna. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) 
Um, If you haven't heard that song, listen to it. It'll change your life. We love Moon. So good. Anyway, she tells Paul that, again, she's his number one fan. She used to be a nurse. So she took him back after seeing his accident. She says he has already been inside of her house for two days. And she also reveals the extent of the injuries that he endured in the crash. She set his legs to the best of her ability, but when she pulls back the covers to show them, we can see that both of his legs were brutally broken. She has set them both in metal splints, and she says that his shoulder was dislocated and she popped it back into place for him. So we can see that he is in really bad shape and is definitely bedridden. Also, she tried to contact the hospital to get him to a better facility, but the phone lines are down because of the storm. I wrote compound fractures in both legs. Elise's favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the makeup, I think, is pretty brutal for that scene. Oh, his legs are purple. And they are puffy, swollen. So then we have Marcia, Paul's agent, calling the Silver Creek sheriff saying that her client, Paul, may be in trouble. And this sheriff is Buster. (laughs) We love Buster. Marcia informs Buster that Paul usually likes writing in one of their lodges, but he has since checked out and no one's heard from him. So Buster's like, hey, I'll put his name through the system and let you know if I hear anything. Usually these things solve themselves. But as he hangs the phone up, he asks his deputy and also wife, Virginia, how long ago was that blizzard? Last Tuesday. So Mm -hmm. it's been at least over a week since the presumed accident that we saw earlier in the film. I'm not sure if we've established. So we know Paul is a writer. He had already mentioned he's tired of this misery business. The misery business being a romantic series set in like Victorian times following the title character Misery through her romantic escapades. And the book he was currently working on, not only was it part of that Misery series, but he had commented to his agent that he wants to be done with this series. So not only did he finish a book in that series, he finished the last book in that series. And we even get some comments from him in that flashback scene with Marcia from earlier that he almost stumbled by accident into writing this series. He wanted to be more of a quote-unquote serious writer, not somebody who spends time focusing on these romantic novels like he has. So he's hoping to move on from this series to something that might be taken a little bit more seriously by his fans. Even though he already has a wildly successful series that he's been working on for years, but apparently this is supposed to be the last book that he had just finished before his crash. So we return on a point of view of Annie shaving Paul's face. Paul notes that it's a miracle that she found him in that wreckage, but Annie's like, it was no miracle at all. I'm your number one fan and I've been following you in a way. Mm -hmm. In fact, I knew you always stayed at the Silver Creek Lodge, and I would come watch you right through the window sometimes. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, Paul, you know, is taking this news in stride. I think he knows he's in a precarious situation and, you know, kind of passes Annie off as just this fangirl. She's like, it was really lucky that I was following you home and I saw you go off the side of the road. I was able to get you out. And he continues to assure him, I'm going to keep checking the phone lines. But now that we know that Buster has received a call from Marcia, we know that to be BS at this point. She very sheepishly asks to read his new book that she found in his briefcase. And eventually he relents as a repayment for saving his life. He even says, maybe you could come up with a title since I don't have one yet. 
So you could tell that he's trying to be gracious to how much she admires him and trying to do what he can to repay her for her kindness because she did set his legs and Mm -hmm. has been taking care of him up until this point. And you could tell he's uncomfortable by the fact that he hasn't been able to like reach anybody in his real life, but obviously knows that they're in a situation. He doesn't really have a lot of knowledge of what's going on on the outside of her house. So he's taking most of what she says at face value still at this point. This is also where we get one of my favorite lines of the movie from Annie. She sees that Paul might be a little bit overwhelmed with the questioning about, can I read your manuscript, et cetera, et cetera. And she goes, forgive me, Paul, for prattling away and making you feel all oogie. (laughs) I was like, that's when I knew that this movie was not going to be what I expected it to be. Because it's fucking funny. I need to adopt (laughs) so many words in Annie's vocabulary. Number one, oogie. And there's going to be another one that comes up very soon. (laughs) I also have a really good line that I love from her that I'll share later, but I can't wait. She's great. So meanwhile, we see the sheriff is looking into Paul's disappearance. He goes to the Silver Creek Hotel, checks out where Paul was staying, gets confirmation that he checked out. But of course, they still don't know where he is. So the investigation continues. Later, Annie confronts Paul about the swearing she has encountered in his manuscript. She gets herself all worked up and is making a scene as she is trying to feed him tomato soup. And she's so worked up that she starts spilling the tomato soup all over the bed with her passion. She does a, ooh, look what you made me do. Taylor Swift, again, that gaslighting. I'm like, well, look what you made me do because she was so upset saying how the swearing has no nobility. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. But then she ends up calming herself back down, returning to that number one fan status and saying, I love you, Paul, your mind, your creativity. That's what I meant. So then we are met with Buster and Virginia driving. Virginia is both driving and horny. She is feeling up her husband's leg. She wants to pull over on the side of that road and do something about it. And he is just (laughs) there for business. He's like, Virginia, when you're in this truck, you are my deputy, not my wife. It's, It's so fucking funny. But they eventually stop the truck when they notice a tree that has been snapped in half off the side of the road. So they stop to investigate. (laughs) This is also one of my favorite lines of the film. (laughs) Buster is like making his way down this snow that is very deep. It's waist deep. It is waist deep. He is trying his best to manage. And Virginia's like, do you need help down there? And he's like, no, I'm enjoying myself. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I love him so much. But he ends up stopping just about 10 feet shy from Paul's car, which has been almost completely covered by the snow from the blizzard. So he was very close to finding the wreckage, but stopped just short of it and makes his way back up to the road, but relents that they need to go talk to the newspaper office about Paul's disappearance. He actually needs to report him missing now. And just then, Annie drives by them on the road, showing that these characters are very much in the same town. Meanwhile, Annie talks to Paul again about the book. She has now reached page 75. She's ogling over how perfect it is, gushing over his genius. And she ends up introducing Paul to her pig, Misery. (laughs) A little bit later, we see, again, time is elapsing. Paul is still in bed recovering. Annie has now reached page 300, and she is still absolutely loving this manuscript. She can't get enough of it. It's divine. (laughs) 
And then she chases Misery out of the room snorting, which is like just so very funny and unsettling. And also in this interaction, Paul is like, hey, are the phone lines up yet? It's my daughter's birthday. I would very much like to call her. And I forget what she says, but she said that she had talked to a doctor down at the store and it's like, oh, as long as he's not infected, he should be okay. But the road to the hospital is still very much fucked or something. Oh, she found a way to be like, I called your agent for you. Don't worry about it. Yes, because earlier, I think Paul gave Annie his daughter's name and his agent's name. Mm -hmm. And she plays it off like, when I was in town today where the phone lines are working, I talked to both of them and told them where you were and confirmed that you're okay. But obviously, he doesn't like the sound of that. Well, no. And I kind of love Paul. I think James Can does such a good job of like, you can read on his face that he knows something is wrong, but he also knows that he is completely vulnerable and can't do much. So he has to like toe the line between asking questions and kind of being skeptical and prodding enough to try to get information, but also being grateful and appreciative, even though it's such a scary situation being at Annie's complete disposal. And I think my most notable James Can role is an elf. Like same, his same. face acting. <laughs> like I'm just envisioning him picking up the lingerie that, yes, that buddy gets that him. That buddy gets him for somebody special. <laughs> then we see Annie going on this monologue about when my husband left me, it wasn't an easy time. I thought I might go crazy. And I would do so much reading on my night shifts at the hospital, and your books helped me forget all of her problems. I would just read them over and over. And it's so funny because she's having this very like heartfelt monologue about how much his work really means to her, which I think is helpful because it's showing that her investment is genuine. But then we see that Paul was just pissing in a bottle and she was waiting for him to stop pissing while she's giving this heartfelt monologue, which I thought was just very (laughs) funny. And she ends up leaving him again so that she can finish the book. But then that night... This is really where we have a turning point. Annie comes into Paul's room furious. He wakes up to her angry face glaring down at him. And she is furious over the fact that Paul has killed off the misery character in the final manuscript. She says, I thought you were good, Paul, but you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie. (laughs) And she is so furious before leaving the room. She tells him she never actually contacted his family and that no one knows he's there. Quote, and don't even think about anybody coming for you, not the doctors, not your agent, not your family, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here and you better hope nothing happens to me because if I die, you die. Whoa. Yeah, there was nothing nice or friendly about that interaction. (laughs) So she drives away into the night. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she does drive away into the night. She just goes off. I don't know where she goes, but she just like drives off into the night and he is assessing how fucked he is. So he very painfully lowers himself onto the floor, fucking his leg in the process. Like these legs are not working for him. Oh, my gosh. And it's hard to watch. Mm -hmm. But he ends up dragging himself by his one good arm across the floor. But the bedroom door is locked. So then we cut to Buster, who is reading Paul's missing persons report in the newspaper and assuring Marcia on the phone that everything that could be done for Paul is being done, including working with the state police and FBI. And Virginia is confirming that Paul's credit card hasn't been used since the lodge. So, okay, they're piecing the puzzle together that Paul is missing, but obviously not getting very close to the actual truth of the matter just yet. The next day, Annie arrives back in Paul's bedroom and finds him sprawled out on the floor where he had tried to escape. 
And she is all kind again. She's all nice. Rainbows and butterflies. She says that God has told her that he delivered Paul unto her so that she could show him the way. First, she gets Paul back into bed with her extreme strength. And then she wheels in her charcoal grill and puts the manuscript on the burner and pours lighter fluid all over it. And she tells Paul to light the match and burn his manuscript. He tries to trick her into thinking it would be no use because he already has sent copies to his agent. There are already so many copies at different publishing houses and so on. But because Annie is obsessed with Paul, she knows that that's not the case. He never makes more than one copy of his manuscript as a superstition because that's how he handled his first book being published. And she knows that this is the only manuscript. So she does not fall for his ruse. And her reasoning is that she wants him to rid the world of this filth. Again, she doesn't like the profanity. She doesn't like that misery is dead. She then begins waving her arms in provocation. And as she's waving her arms, saying that this is what God wants, she's trying to help him. Please help her help him. She's also dousing him with kerosene. Yeah. And I love this scene because you could tell that she's doing it intentionally, but only in a way where he's finally realizing that she fucking means business. So he eventually begrudgingly strikes the match, throws it on the grill, setting his manuscript on fire. But of course, this is like a grill fire inside a tiny bedroom. So this blaze is insane. It threatens to catch the whole room on fire. And as these flames are burning, we can hear Annie go, oh my goodness, heavens to Betsy, (laughs) just over and over again. She wheels the grill out of the room. Obviously, we can see a look on Paul's face of just utter defeat. Meanwhile, Buster is in a bird. There is a helicopter whirring over the Wilkes house. And obviously, Paul is very excited by this. But in the bird, Buster notes that we're over top of the Wilkes barn now, but I don't see a Mustang anywhere. So we must go back. So you could tell that this search operation is still very much in the front of Buster's mind. But without the car, they really don't have anything to work on. And again, it is still winter. The snow is still there. So the car has not revealed itself just yet. So they end up going away. And Annie returns back in to give Paul more pills. But instead of taking the pills, Paul pockets them between the bed frame and the mattress and doesn't take them. Later, Annie is watching TV in her room while Paul is eating more dinner. Just like me with Cheetos and a two liter (laughs) thing of Coke watching some dating shows. I know that's right. In bed. (laughs) But we see him expand on his plan to hide these pills. He goes as far as to use his fork to cut an actual pocket into his mattress to hide more pills. So, you know, if the mattress is moved, she's still not going to find these pills because now they're in a pocket inside the mattress. Later, she comes in the room and reveals a big surprise. She wants Paul to write a new book in which misery comes back to life. And she wants him to dedicate it to her for saving his life. But as she's talking to him about this big plan, she has a typewriter, she set up a desk. He sees like a hairpin, a bobby pin on the floor. And we can tell based on the camera angle and the music and things like that, he is thinking of something. He has had some kind of revelation. He asks Annie to buy him some different paper because the kind she has smudges. So she freaks out. This is a great moment. She says in a fit of rage, what's the matter? I'll tell you. What's the matter? I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you. I clean you. I dress you. And what things do I get? You bought the wrong paper, Annie. I can't write on this paper, Annie. Well, I get you your stupid paper, but you just better start showing me a little appreciation around here, Mr. Man. (laughs) And he just has to sit there and take it. But she leaves to go get paper. Paul picks up a bobby pin off the floor. 
and then uses it to pick the lock on the door of the room and get out. But also, I had a question for you. Okay, so you know how Annie is saying she wants Paul to pick up right where he left off, like after Misery's death? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that not make sense? I don't, and this is where I was confused, is because she says she's this super fan. And then we see her at one point go out and buy the latest copy of the book. Obviously, when writers are completing things isn't necessarily in line with when the public sees them. Because we see her go out and buy new copies of his books continuously. She's like, oh, look what I picked up at the store today. And I guess it was the most recent. And I don't think she knew that Misery died until she picked up the latest copy of his book that was just in circulation. Oh, so what he wrote, his final manuscript, was not a part of the Misery no, series. This was, was his pursuit to get yes, back into being a serious writer. Correct, correct. Okay. She, she had gone to the store and gotten his latest novel, which I'm guessing on his timeline was just releasing. Okay. And he was already on a writer's retreat trying to write this. The next best thing and she didn't know that misery was canonically dead when she took him in and then once that new novel came out and she went she's like look what i got at the store today and then she was reading it she realized that he had written misery to die then she was like i don't care about this manuscript with all this filth mm. you're gonna write something that brings misery back to life Okay, that makes so much more sense. Thank you so much. Well, it is confusing <laughs> because she keeps excusing herself to go read, but I understand that it's confusing of, are you reading the novel you just bought or are you writing the manuscript yeah. that you stole from his briefcase? <laughs> it took me a minute to differentiate, but my guess is that she did not know Misery was dead when she took him in. She went and bought the new copy of the book that was released by the time that he got into the accident and that the new manuscript didn't have anything to do with Misery. So she's like, I don't care about this. Okay, right, perfect. So he rolls into the next room and Hurley tries to dial the phone, but the phone is fake. It's fucking fake. It's fucking fake. Not not a wire to be found inside that thing. It's just a hollow phone shell. So he is trying to navigate through her living room. He accidentally knocks a penguin figurine off the corner of a table and then replaces it, but he replaces it in the wrong direction, which will become important later. He discovers her shrine to him. And realizes he had once signed an autograph for her, which must be scary for him because Wait. I'm sure it meant everything to her, but nothing to him. What? I have to tell you what this moment reminded me of. Ooh, tell me. Do you remember Hey Arnold? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember Helga G. Pataki? Of course I do. Okay. Do you remember her shrine to Arnold in her closet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. This shrine is giving the Arnold shrine in Helga G. Pataki's closet. <laughs> <laughs> This is reminding me of a moment in Saw 6 that you have not seen yet. But I will. Or 7. It's 6 or 7. I forget which one. But they try to de-age Pop-Pop Jigsaw by putting a backwards hat on him. And it's very, very funny. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about it when we do a revisit to Saw Timber. Regardless, he is going through her house, looking in all the closets, discovering the pills that he's been taking in mass and pockets like a sheet of them. He climbs out of his chair and tries going through the kitchen to the back door because the width of his chair does not fit through the width of the doorway, but it's locked. So he eyes a knife block and thinks about going for it, but then he hears Annie's truck approaching with the new paper. So he crawls back toward his chair frantically. He rolls through the house and back into the room just in time as Annie walks up. He gets himself back into position and this man is sweaty. And this is like my favorite line of the movie. <laughs> Paul, you're dripping with perspiration. Your color is very hectic. What have you been doing? <laughs> Your color is very hectic. What have you been doing? <laughs> she has such a way with words, doesn't she? 
But he says, I've been suffering because I need my pills. And while she goes to get his pills, he's able to like hide the evidence of the bobby pin and the pills that he has stolen. As Annie puts him back into bed, she gives him like a notepad and paper and is like, think of me as your inspiration with all your new ideas and blows him a kiss that he catches very sarcastically. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Sheriff Buster has found Paul's car in another helicopter flight above the area surrounding the Silver Creek. A car is seen peeking out of the snow. A different deputy is giving an interview with newscasters that have arrived and tells them that the presumption is that Paul is dead. They can't find his body, but the sheriff observes marks on the driver's side door that suggest somebody used something to pull the door open and get Paul out of the car. So he thinks somebody came on the scene and got Paul. So he's not giving up hope that Paul is alive. The following night, we see that Paul is opening up the little plasticky or dissolvable pill canisters and dumping out all the powder inside into a tiny paper envelope. So he's clearly plotting something with all of this powder from these pain meds. Later, he sits in front of the typewriter with writer's block typing fuck, 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 fuck over and over again, aka me in college when I couldn't think of anything (laughs) to write. But then he actually begins writing, and I wrote, how funny would it be if he wrote, I'll work and I'll play makes Jack a doll boy. Over <laughs> over That's the kind of manuscript that he should be writing in this scenario. He does write something, but Annie doesn't like it. <laughs> Annie has read like maybe three chapters of what Paul did come up with and notes that what he's produced so far isn't worthy of his name, and he'll have to try again. <laughs> Except for the part where he named the grave digger after her. <laughs> Which is just so, so funny. She goes on to say about how she used to watch these movies as a kid and they would all like end on these cliffhangers and she would get so mad when the cliffhanger was undone in the next installment and she's like, you can't cheat me like this. You're going to have to work from the ending that you wrote and undo it the fair way because he killed Misery in his latest book. Later, it snows heavily through the night as Annie reads the next draft of Paul's book and she enthusiastically approves. And it's so funny because she's like, I understand why the blood transfusion wouldn't have worked, but now she's the long lost sister of the da-da. Like, essentially, Paul made up some sci-fi shit in order to (laughs) resurrect this girl from the dead. I forget how, but Annie is giddy that Misery is alive and she's going to put on her Liberace records about it. And Paul takes this opportunity to ask Annie to have dinner with him tonight to celebrate, and she is enamored at the idea. Meanwhile, Buster has taken it upon himself to read the Misery book series. He just is trying to put some pieces together. He wants to know a little bit more about this author, what his work is, which I think is great detective work. Buster is a genius. But Virginia doesn't think it is because (laughs) she thinks he's having an affair and buying her books. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably like, why don't you pay attention to me with all this free time you have on your hands to read? But the dinner rolls around. Annie wheels Paul into the dining room area. They are outside of his usual bedroom setting. And he wants to make a toast to Misery's return. But before, he asks if Annie has any candles on hand. While she is roaming around looking for candles and different cabinets and whatnot, Paul takes advantage of the time she's distracted to pour all the powder he has collected from those pills into her wine glass before she can come back. But as she goes to toast, as I noted, in her Puritan bests. Oh, I, she looks amazing. <laughs> she spills all of her wine as she hits the candelabra mm-hmm. on her way to the toast. And Paul is gutted. Oh, I do that all the time. I'm constantly <laughs> knocking over my wine because I almost knock over my candelabras. 
But people wouldn't know that we actually record by candelabra very often. That is actually a fun little fact. I have a humming light in my dining room. <laughs> so if we record in the dark, we oftentimes record by candelabra. <laughs> We're so sexy. We, I, it's such a little treat. <laughs> Everybody get yourself a functioning candelabra. <laughs> so then we go into a writing montage where we have Paul writing, Annie reading, Buster reading. It's very funny. Many days and nights go by. Paul changes in and out of many flannel shirts. <laughs> and he keeps up his stamina by doing bench presses with a typewriter. Which so is probably very heavy. It is probably very heavy. But we slow down to a night where it is now raining and Annie enters very devoid of her usual spunk to deliver Paul his pills. He's like, what's wrong with you? And Annie says that the rain gives her the blues. Going on to say, when you first came here, I only loved the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him too. Oh boy. I know you don't love me. Don't say you do. You're a beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world and I'm not a movie star type. You'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. And he's like, well, why would you lose me? And she goes on to say, the book's almost finished. Your legs are getting better. And soon you'll want to leave. And he's like, well, why would I leave? I like it here. Again, he's trying to work his way into better favor. And she says, that's very kind, but I bet it's not altogether true. And then she pulls out a gun from her robe. She does indeed. She says, I have this gun and sometimes I think about using it. I better go now. I might put bullets in it. And then she drives off into the night. Again, she's fucking unhinged. I love her for it. Yeah, these moments are so complex, though, mm -hmm. because she's not just neurotic. She has deep emotions. And when she's outside of Paul's room, we can see that she's been thinking about things. But of course, not in an altogether realistic, logical way. I don't know. I think it's so interesting to see these different sides of her. But I also think it adds to her fear factor because Annie really is unpredictable. She's not like, and I always use Michael Myers as my example of like a predictable villain. Like she's not the kind of villain you watch on screen and get comfortable with. She keeps changing her patterns. She is a surprising character. So I feel like moments like this help add to that surprise factor. And they keep us as an audience on our toes about what the heck she's going to do next. So Annie leaves the house and Paul's like, okay, I need to fucking arm myself. So he ends up getting a knife from the kitchen and discovers that Annie has been scrapbooking about him. Mm-hmm. Cute. Mm -hmm. And about some other things as well. What else? Okay, so... Of course, when he stumbles upon her scrapbook, it is open to newspaper clippings and images and whatnot of him. So he shuts the book and then starts from the beginning... And we see several other newspaper clippings. Well, first it starts with some regular looking photos of Annie as a child. <laughs> but then we get some newspaper clippings about the death of her father. And then we get some newspaper clippings about the death of Annie's college roommate. And then we get into some newspaper clippings about Annie being approved for her nurse license and then her nurse license being revoked because she was arrested for killing babies as a maternity nurse. And we can see that she has started to scrapbook, not your normal scrapbook content, but newspaper clippings of crimes that she has been involved with. So it's not just kidnapping Paul. It's killing her father, killing her roommate, and being an angel of death, quote unquote, nurse, being arrested for it and serving real prison time for that. So Paul ends up rolling back to bed and I wrote practicing his Michael Myersing, which is very funny that you just oh yeah up because he's practicing unsheathing this knife from underneath his sling. It's very funny. 
And he hears Annie return home, but she doesn't enter his room. So he tucks the knife under the mattress and falls asleep. But as he wakes up in the night, Annie is watching him. And before he can react, she injects him with something out of a syringe and he passes right back out. And then we enter the scene. Yeah, it is the morning and Paul awakens again to find himself tied to the bed. And Annie reveals that she knows that Paul has been out of his room. She says, Paul, my little penguin always faces due south. (laughs) (laughs) And she also shows him that she found the knife he had tucked between the mattress, the quote unquote key, which was the bobby pin. And she mentions the scrapbook. She says, quote, I know I left my scrapbook out. I can imagine what you might be thinking of me. But you see, Paul, it's all okay. Last night it came so clear. I realized you just need more time. Eventually you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days of the Kimberly Diamond Mines? And then she goes off on this whole little story where she basically explains the idea of hobbling. And she says this to kind of give some context for the reason why she is going to put a block of wood between Paul's ankles and smash his ankles so that the bones break to hobble him and keep him forever in her home. And she concludes this assault with, God, I love you. (laughs) And the visual of his foot going off to the side. I'll tell you what, I was not expecting that visual. That is on every list of 100 scariest movie moments. Like just that visual of his ankle going is oof. So later we see Annie pulling up to the store, but someone cuts her off and she screams, you cockadoody, <laughs> which ugh, I just need to bring that into my everyday vernacular yesterday. Thank you very much. But this makes Buster suspicious of Annie being like, you get angry. Maybe I should look into your past. And as he does look into her past, he sees obviously all the shit that we saw in the scrapbook, but then also realizes that she fucking quoted Paul on trial. One of the lines that he really liked in his novel, she used while on trial. So this is enough to convince Buster. So then Buster goes and confirms with the shop owner that like, hey, is Annie still buying Paul's books? And he's like, yeah, she sure is. And a bunch of typing paper. So then Buster goes off on a rescue mission. Paul notices Buster approach the house. Annie is ready for this. She comes in and tries to sedate Paul. They scuffle a little bit and Annie is able to inject Paul again with another sedative and throw him in the basement just as Buster knocks on the door. Buster questions Annie about Paul. It's like, hey, what do you know about Paul Sheldon? And then she starts listing off, well, he was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, <laughs> to this and this, and his parents' names are this. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait. Well, he's missing. Like, what do you know about him? And she's like, you know, I'm his biggest fan. And the news of that accident almost killed me too. But when I prayed about it, God responded and told me I have to be ready to be his replacement. Yeah, she had a little bit of a story lined up here. Mm-hmm. And that comes through as she takes the sheriff on a tour around her house. She explains the way the shrine and she explains the way the typewriter and the almost complete manuscript upstairs by saying that obviously she's read a lot of Paul Sheldon's books. She knows his style and she was trying to be his protege and emulate his writing in the wake of this accident. She also offers to give the sheriff some hot cocoa, but he says he'd better get going. But as he leaves, he hears a noise come from the inside of the house. I'm imagining like he can hear this because maybe there's like a storm door towards the front of the house or something. Because Paul had knocked over the grill. The grill. I love that the grill comes back. Yeah. The fucking grill. That Which is, why is that inside? Shouldn't that be outside always? I guess not in the winter. We've seen this grill in every room of the house. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yes, he hears the girl topple, goes back inside. He does not see Annie anywhere and just kind of continues on his search. Finds a hidden basement door, which kind of blends in with the way the wall looks. Opens it up and sees Paul at the bottom of the stairs. Before he can really do anything, he is shot through the chest from behind with a shotgun. As he falls down the stairs, we can see Annie standing behind him with the smoking gun. So, so sad. This reminds me of when elderly Pearl tried to shoot at Maxine and she fucking flew out the front door. Oh, yeah, because she was probably like 60 pounds exactly. at that point. <laughs> it just reminded me of that oh, for some God. reason. Yes. Annie tries to comfort Paul saying, well, that was bound to happen. And she's known for some time that she was chosen to save him, that they're meant to be together forever. But now their time in this world must end, but she's prepared for what has to be done. She put a bullet in her gun for each of them. And darling, it will be so beautiful. And as Annie holds up the handgun and another syringe to sedate him and tells him not to be afraid, she says, I love you. And he says, I love you too, which makes her pause. He says, you're right, we're meant to be together and we must die, but it must be so that misery can live. We have the power to give misery eternal life, but I must finish the book. Just give me till dawn and it will be done. So this fends Annie off long enough for him to sneak some kerosene into his pants as she retrieves the wheelchair for him to put him back in his study. Later, he is writing his book, Annie checks on him, and he requests three things. But she already knows what those things are, because just like we saw in the beginning of the movie, Paul Sheldon has a little bit of a ritual when he finishes a manuscript. He requests a cigarette, matches, and a bottle of Dom Perignon, which is so funny because Annie, as she's reciting what he wants, she says, Dom Perignon, Did you get it? <laughs> which is like how I would say it if, if I hadn't heard it before. It's reminding me of Bon Iver. Oh, in college. <laughs> bon Iver. Bon Iver. Ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, yes. Look, <laughs> I'm sure I have I'm sure I've said my fair share of things incorrectly, especially if they're in French, which is I don't have any experience with French really. Oh no, I used to say hors d'oeuvres like horse divorce. <laughs> like I'm no better. The French language and me don't get along. But <laughs> But when Annie returns with these three things, he requests two glasses, seemingly to invite Annie into the celebration. While she is in the other room getting a second glass to celebrate the end of this manuscript, we see Paul pouring lighter fluid all over the manuscript. And when Annie enters back in the room, he lights it on fire. But as he's lighting the manuscript on fire, he has the ending crumpled up in his hand, <laughs> which is, again, like teasing her because she really wants to know how it ends. She's like, you can't. And he's like, why not? I learned it from you. <laughs> so she's trying to get the fire out on the manuscript. But then Paul uses this opportunity to lift the typewriter over his head, which we've seen him do many times at this point. And knock her over the head with a typewriter, which knocks her down. But she bounces back, tries to strangle him, knocks his head into the window, calling him a lying cocksucker. Which is swearing, excuse me. It is not noble language, uh -uh. Annie. But then he presses his fingers into her eyes, shoves her back. But then she gets a shot off on him in the chest. He's undeterred, tackles her out of his wheelchair. They wrestle on the ground. He then shoves burning pages of the manuscript in her mouth, telling her to eat it till you choke, you sick, twisted fuck. Eventually, there's a final confrontation where Paul is able to grab an iron pig and smack her over the head with it until she collapses dead on him. 18 months later, <laughs> 
Paul is at a restaurant with his agent, Marcia. She is trying to tell him to write about his experiences. He says he does not want to write about those experiences. And as they're kind of having this conversation about this book that has turned into a hit and things like that, he sees a waitress approaching that he originally sees Annie's face on her face, almost as like this fear that she might still be coming for him. But then, of course, we see a regular waitress appear before them at their table and say Annie's famous line, I'm your number one fan. And then that's the movie. Damn. This was so much more fun than I thought it was going to be. I know, me too. I didn't realize there were going to be so many of those comedic moments, which I always think are special. So I figured what I would do in the post-plot is start off with a couple of key comparisons between the film and the original novel the film was based on. So according to a 2020 Screen Rant article by Dan Peek, there are several differences between the original King novel and the film version. So here are a few. In the film, we have the famous sledgehammer scene where Annie breaks Paul's ankles with two swings. But in the book, she uses an axe to cut off one of his feet and then later on cuts off one of his thumbs. So like there's literal amputation in the novel. I mean, I think the sledgehammer scene is really iconic and kind of different, but that's really quite different than amputation. Maybe they're just trying to differentiate the weaponry of the King Arsenal after The Shining and the axe. Yeah, maybe. That's a good point. In the film, it takes Paul a few days to realize that Annie isn't the caring individual she originally presents herself as. But in the book, it seems like he becomes immediately suspicious of her behavior, which I thought was an interesting choice as well. In the film, Annie burns Paul's actual manuscript rescued from the car accident. But in the book, Annie only burns a stack of unrelated papers as a ruse, and she preserves the manuscript. So when Paul escapes, he's able to publish what he actually wrote. Which is confusing because when we see Marcia and Paul meet at the end of the movie, you could tell that he had just published a book. And that it was something that he was proud of and something more serious. So I'm wondering if he just rewrote that manuscript generally. I mean, I'm sure he could have. I mean, it would have been time consuming, but he could have done it. Also in the film, State Trooper Buster is killed by a shotgun blast to the chest, RIP. But in the book, Annie stabs him when she realizes that he knows Paul is in the house. And then she runs over him with a lawnmower to finish him off. Okay, Sinister. I know. I'm very grateful for this change. I don't think my heart would have been able to stand it if Buster got run over by a lawnmower. And then finally, Annie dies in both the book and the film similarly, though there are some differences. In the film, we see Annie and Paul fight until she smacks her head on the typewriter, pretends to be dead, leaps back up, and is finally bludgeoned with the pig statue. In the book, the typewriter thing happens, but when she jumps up, she tries to grab a chainsaw (laughs) before she succumbs to her original head wound. Okay, Leatherface. I know. I was like, book Annie is seriously wild. She has such a repertoire of weapons on hand. It's wild. I mean, she is a farmer, and I think that's something we didn't talk about earlier is that you're like, oh my gosh, she's so strong, but she is like running a farm by herself. That's true. So like she's got that pearl strength, that farm girl strength. And I will I will be mentioning Pearl very shortly. So this is on Annie's enduring character. So Misery is a movie that doesn't feel far from current popular culture, despite being just under 35 years old. And a lot of that, based on what I've read, seems like it has to do with Kathy Bates's nuanced portrayal of Annie. But it also has to do with Annie's character herself. 
This idea is explored in Beatrice Loiza's 2020 article, Misery at 30, A Terrifying Look at the Toxicity of Fandom. Referring to the year this movie was originally released, Loiza writes, quote, This was the era of erotic thrillers, after all, and movies about murderous female stalkers like Fatal Attraction had already left their mark. But Misery was different. In placing a bizarrely childish mad spinster in the spotlight, it had more in common with the campy, warning, bad French, Grand Dame Guignol movies of the 60s and 70s than it did with the sleek, sleazy chillers popular at the time. Grandmothers aren't supposed to be killers, yet the knife-wielding biddies of exploitation cinema proved otherwise. Likewise, Annie, a virginal nerd who refuses to swear, shoots a bullet through a sheriff's belly, and smashes Paul's ankles with two strokes of a hammer without ever blinking her eye. Thirty years on, Misery's gleefully demented union of innocence and brutality still captivates, even if we're more attuned to the dark sides of diehards. And I immediately wrote, this movie walked so X and Pearl could fly. Yeah. Like, I feel like that was a storyline that this movie helped explore, like the idea of kind of an unassuming, unsuspected villain that I don't think really continued to be explored at that time. I agree with you. It's interesting because we see Annie kind of maintain those elements of that evangelical upbringing that Maxine had. So it's interesting to see those ideals still prevailing over Annie's character but like the justification of the conquest of God's word or whatever the fuck it is will justify any behavior after that. But it is weird. Like we all like things, right? <laughs> like we're all into things, but then, you know, you hear about stalkers, you hear about people who take things like way over the fucking line. I mean, think about it. Like you have your favorite person or somebody you admire so much who literally gets into a car crash in your front lawn. And like, yeah, if you were of that solitary mind and of her background, I mean, we don't really get a lot about her background, but like I could see how somebody in her position would think it was divinely orchestrated. Yeah, yeah. And especially because she is such an isolated character. Mm -hmm. Like, we know she lives in a small town and we see her interact with certain town members, but she lives by herself. She operates this farm by herself. And I also think that even though this article mentions fandom, it really does not talk about fandom. That is one of the words that made me click on this article, because I think Annie being this obsessive fan is another reason why her character really endures, because there are so many instances you know, through the years of both harmful and comical examples of fandom. I think of somebody like Taylor Swift. And we talk about her, we joke about her. And like, there have been comical examples of people fangirling over her, like funny TikTok trends, and even good things like the friendship bracelet trend and things like that. But then there are also other examples where somebody tried to jump up on stage to touch her or talk to her during her performance. And there are like issues that, you know, put people in danger or might scare the performer. People have broken into her house. People have broken into her house. So it's like, I feel like it's so weird. Like fandom, it seems like always exists in this like hyper serious place, but also this like very funny, socially important sort of way. And I think that makes sense for Annie's character. Like we see her kind of embody both of those kinds of fans. We see her want to care for Paul and set his legs and make sure he's okay and carry him on over her shoulder through the snow. But then we also see her like physically abusing him. And projecting romantic fantasies. Yes, yes. And it almost seems like too, like she can't even decide what her motivations are with him because she takes on this like very maternal caretaking role, but then she says she's in love with him. But at the same time, we don't ever see her trying to like, you know what I mean? We don't see that kind of like physical manifestation of this romantic love that she's professing. 
Which brings me to my next point. Okay, so this is on masculinity. So this is the part of the show where we talk about some gender theory, mm-hmm. <laughs> specifically focusing on masculinity versus femininity. Yeehaw. And trigger warning, this source that I found talks about rape specifically. This is Douglas Kesey's 2002 article, quote, your legs must be singing grand opera, masculinity, masochism, and Stephen King's misery. And this article discusses male versus female autonomy, hinging on the concept of a wish fulfillment fantasy. So again, this article is from 2002. And so I think we're going to talk about this, which focuses a lot more on Paul's character. But then I also have some other thoughts about Annie's character that I want to get into after this, because I do want to kind of refocus on Annie. Okay, so first, Kesey defines a wish fulfillment fantasy in Freudian terms. Quote, Freud argued that anxiety dreams or nightmares were still wish fulfillment fantasies in which the dreamer is compelled to repeat traumatic experiences that occurred earlier in life, but to repeat them with a difference. In the revision, that is the dream. The dreamer is no longer a passive victim, but instead eventually gains control over disturbing past events. This is me speaking. We all know that Freud has a deeply controversial legacy, but his theories do prevail in psychoanalytic conversations around film and whatnot, and they're important in Kesey's article, so I did want to address them. With this theory in mind, Kesey writes, quote, Paul's misery is Stephen King's masochistic fantasy, a nightmare of the male body emasculated, the male physique stripped of its independence, and yet not quite. For all of Paul's suffering, and there is an extraordinary amount of it, shockingly detailed, excruciatingly drawn out, and just a chop away from fatal, all this male masochism merely leads to the triumphant assertion of masculinity in the end. As feminist critics have not failed to note, the, quote, violence and bodily invasions and misery began with Annie's oral, quote-unquote, rape of Paul. And I think what this is referring to is her CPR in the beginning. But they end as Paul shoves a burning manuscript down Annie's throat. And in the novel, this is different from the movie dialogue. In the novel, he literally is thinking to himself, quote, I'm going to rape you all right, Annie. Mm -hmm. So that word literally is present in the novel during that scene. In order to reassert the gender identity necessary for creativity in Stephen King's metaphorical universe, Annie must be raped. Thus, Annie's orifices must be filled, especially her demanding mouth, her power overthrown, and her sexual creative passivity reimposed. The scene in which Paul forces Annie to eat his manuscript may have been inspired by the one in Ridley Scott's 1979 film Alien, where the android Ash attempts to shove a rolled-up porno mag down the throat of the troublesomely empowered female Ripley. Scott's film, however, ends with its female hero triumphant, whereas the climax of King's novel involves the reassertion of male force. So I kind of read that comparison with Alien as audiences celebrating Ripley's success because she overcomes robots and aliens, which are inhuman offenders. Mm -hmm. Also, I think her masculine characterization may help 1970 audiences identify with her playing a hero in what was usually a man's role in the film. But misery showcases like man versus woman. And to kind of underscore that point a little bit more, Kesey asserts that Paul's reassertion of power contributed to the movie's success. So in other words, if the movie did not end with Paul reasserting that physical power, the movie may not have been as successful. And he cites a different film that features a primary male protagonist, in this case played by Clint Eastwood, who suffers torture and amputation at the hands of women. 
This film, The Beguiled, was not a box office success, and Kesey recalls director of the film Don Siegel commenting, quote, maybe a lot of people just didn't want to see Clint Eastwood's leg cut off. But scholar Paul Smith has another explanation for the unpopularity of The Beguiled. He points out that, in contrast to other Clint Eastwood movies, where the hero undergoes terrible suffering but ultimately emerges not just intact but stronger than ever, in this film, quote, there is no triumphant transcendence in the end after the rushed amputation. Eastwood's anger and accusations provoke the women and girls to murder him with poison, end quote. A dead Eastwood, a dismembered and finally defeated male body, is not one with which movie audiences find it easy to identify. In Smith's view, the lesson to be learned from this movie's failure is, quote, that the masochistic stage of such narratives cannot be presented as a complete castration and that the possibility of transcendence must always be kept available. The masochistic trope in this sense must be no more than a temporary test of the male body. So in other words, part of Misery's success comes from the reassertion of male dominance over women. And now, of course, people may argue, what does it matter? Annie was going to kill the poor guy. What does that have to do with gender? Yeah, fine. But the final stand and dialogue literally talking about rape in the novel certainly brings male versus female dominance into the conversation instead of just like a surface level captive versus captor narrative. It interests me thinking that Paul wants to divorce himself from this romantic novel era that he's in, that Annie obviously very much aligns herself with the ideals of she herself is divorced or at least killed her husband, we don't know. And her way of dominating him is with domesticity. Yes. Is caring for him, is coddling him, is providing his basic needs. Like, I'm going to give you a typewriter and a place to write and <laughs> clothes and food and mm -hmm. pills and all of these types of things. And we don't see any assert power sexually in the way that Paul almost has to at the end. Mm -hmm. And I say has to... With the backing of this analysis, right? Like of him shoving his own work down her throat. Right. And again, if we're relating it to Alien, this phallus, mm -hmm. this oral rape in a sense of like, I'm taking my power back by making you eat my words that you didn't like or that you didn't approve of, all of these types of things. So I almost see it as Paul balking from this severed idea of masculinity where there isn't conquest or there isn't that level of power anymore. Like he feels without power because he's being cared for. Right. And if we're looking at that objectively, it's like, okay, she like splint your legs and did all these things. And granted, like, of course, she... <laughs> <laughs> took it way too fucking far oh, uh -huh. and, and like all yep. these things i'm not saying annie didn't do <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't do shit wrong <laughs> but like in theory if we're thinking about this metaphorically what caused that behavior his ungratefulness I have a little bit more on this. Oh, go for it. Okay, so this is from the same article where Kesey also suggests that Annie's caretaking characterization aligns her with a maternal role, like mm. a monstrous mother. This angle is also interesting when we think of the dynamic between Paul and Annie. He writes, quote, In this fantasy, Paul regresses to the time when he was a young boy completely dependent upon his mother, Annie. Paul's regression is triggered by a midlife crisis. He fears that he is not the man he should be. At the very moment when he is making the greatest effort to prove his masculinity, aka write that new manuscript, break away from this romantic book, series, etc., he is overcome with doubt. Paul has been married, but is twice divorced, which I think is a detail that must be in the novel. Mm -hmm. He is a published author, but he writes women's romances scorned by male reviewers. 
42 years old, King was 40 when Misery was published, Paul is on the road in search of his lost youth, attempting the cross-country trip he had wanted to take since he sold his first novel at age 24. It seems like this movie like really wears the mask of like this romantic conquest on Annie's part because of her obsession with Paul. But it does seem like Annie's characterization is much more maternal, and I think this reading of the movie slash novel is really interesting because it seems like Paul is trying to push away from this caretaking that you mentioned Annie is doing because it's it's holding him back much like a mother's care might hold back her son from that masculine independence, that conquest, making his name how he wants, and so on. I also think it's interesting that he writes these romantic novels, which Annie ascribes to so heavily. Like, these are like the doctrines by which she lives, looking at these examples of gallantry, chivalry. She doesn't want swearing or profanity. She wants that clean, almost wholesome, although albeit dramatic, storyline to follow, which she almost brings into fruition herself when she stalks Paul, when she gets him in her house, right? She makes these grand gestures, but she still keeps caretaking at the heart of it. So in my head, I'm kind of wondering, like, is Annie herself trying to make decisions similar to what she might see in one of these melodramatic novels in order to try to manifest a love of her own, right? Is she trying to follow what she has been reading? And when she sees Paul add swearing into his novel or trying to break away from her or be ungrateful to her, is that the life that she has already lived sneaking back up, bubbling up to the surface and causing this insanely angry reaction? Because she doesn't expect that from Paul, who's the writer of these gorgeous, gorgeous books that she loves so much. It makes me think of, and we were just talking about this, TikTok trends and the honesty in relationships and all these types of things. And it makes me wonder about how in her sick, twisted way, she thinks that Paul has presented himself as this romantic man and he's put himself forth as this man with these ideals and these values just throughout the characters he's been writing. And obviously, she's taking it in a very literal, twisted way. He is a fiction writer. But like, is this supposed to be somewhat of a metaphor of what men put forth about who they are and what they offer? And then when he goes on to say like, well, this is how people talk. Like, this is how I talk. I swear I do this. I do that. And it's like the expectation versus reality. And it's really her coming to a head with those expectations, realities she set up for herself of the misrepresentation, quote unquote, that she's taking away from what Paul has written versus who he actually is living with him. That's so true. Hearing you talk about that is inspiring me to draw more connections between Annie's character and Pearl. Like when we see her messing around with the film projectionist and then she yells at him in the barn, like, what's wrong with me? You said you liked me. Why don't you like me? And then when we see her heartbreaking monologue at the end of the movie, you know, when she's talking to her sister-in-law across the table and we know she's already killed people. We know she's a deeply flawed character, but we can't help as an audience but feel sympathetic towards her because we can see her struggling with these impulses she's had and this life that she lived and these dreams that we saw her reach for and fail to grasp and struggling to come to terms with that. Knowing, again, she's deeply flawed, not excusing this Yeah, behavior. Annie is deeply flawed, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yeah. excusing, yeah, absolutely. But, like, I think that those moments of sincerity, like, where we, the audience, can connect with her, like, these dreams she might have had that have been lost, having this author in her home, but realizing he's just like every other man, like, has this driven her to the point of insanity, and it makes her so fucking relatable with a side of humor, which never hurts. This was so much fun. It was so much fun. I honestly regret not seeing this sooner. 
I will say it's not for our lack of trying. No, it has been unavailable on streaming services for at least a year. We had originally planned on covering this last January, but we could not find it anywhere except if we had paid like $30 for it or something. And I think right now it's on Max, but I had to buy it on Prime to watch it. Oh, no. It was like $5 to digitally own it. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. Yeah, so this is available with an HBO Max subscription. As we say it in this moment. And look, it'll... It may change. It may change. So if it's still available when you listen to this, hop on that. So if you want to keep up with us now that we are back in full swing, please follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. You can also email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.